uh, there was there was no doubt in my mind that part of the appeal of Blair was precisely his drag queen <laughs> kind of uh, persona. Uh, how how how's the drag? How's, what's the drag queen persona of Blair? That smile. You 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 must you must remember yeah, the nineties. Yeah. He had this this and the eyes, and the, it was a kind of glamorous, but you know, because he was channeling Thatcher to yeah. some degree, and. Um, and he did have a drag queen kind of charisma to him, which I mean, he didn't have the any of the ribald <laughs> humor. Well, but indeed, the honesty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, quite the opposite. But he had a kind of glamorousness to him, which was um, unsettling. Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, but gay. It's Thursday, the 4th of March. My name is Alex Hochuli. And if you like bringing close proximity genitals, which are nearly identical, then this is the episode for you. Hi, Phil and George. The, We're here to the, talk about... <laughs> that is the weirdest introduction we've had in nearly like 170 episodes. <laughs> and all the weirder for being spoken so closely into the mic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say. That was. A, we should have an introduction of that quality every single episode. Um, Indeed. So we were talking about why, uh, why, why the gays have sold out. I think, um, which, which sounds like we are um, sitting on our high horse, telling people how they shouldn't sh- shouldn't pursue their politics. But uh, that's what we normally do, right? <laughs> the oh, view is God. good from up on the high horse, <laughs> on the moral high ground. It's Absolutely. a good view. Uh, but we've got two guests coming on to, um, so it's not just us on the high horse. Um, we've got guests, maybe, I don't know how high their horses are. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Um, we got Mark Simpson, who's a British cultural commentator. Um, and also um, River Page will be joining us from the States and is one of the contributing editors to Twink Rev, um, an up and coming podcast. So. I mean, we were, uh, George and I, laughing when you said how high their horse is, because, of course, the other question is how hung their horse <laughs> is. Um, well, we started this off on the right foot, but um, we should probably stop <laughs> us three stop and uh, bring in the guests. Okay, welcome. So we've got Mark Simpson, author and journalist, and we've got River Page, who's contributing editor at twinkrev.com. Hi, River. Hi, Mark. And welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, thank you very much for having me too. So we're here to talk about sexual politics, sexual freedom and gay liberation today. And um, identity politics is one of the themes we keep returning to on this pod. And in many ways, gay politics is the quintessential um, original form of identity politics. Um, But before we do that, before we get stuck into that, let's get to know our guests a little bit. So if we start with you, River, um, we we said uh, you're one of the contributing editors to TwinkRev.com. Can you tell us a little bit about what TwinkRev is? Uh, What's it about? Um, Yeah, so TwinkRev started off as a podcast. It's it's not my podcast. Um, It's run by Sam and Gion. It's lovely. Um, And... They, at, at some point around this time last year, decided that they were going to spin off a um, little online magazine. And, you know, I just had like 80 followers on Twitter or something like made a joke about writing an essay about polyamory and neoliberalism or something like that. And they 
were like, we'll pay you to write this. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> and um, so I did. And then a bunch of other people started writing for them. And it's kind of taken a life of its own. It kind of has like a different audience than even the podcast does. It's um, it's kind of strange, uh, but it you, we're going to actually be uh, rebranding sometime soon. So you might see uh, our publications under like a, like a different name and, and stuff like that, but we'll still be there. Um, uh, River, you're, you're based in, in Florida in, in the panhandle part of the, of the sunshine state um, as, as you were saying earlier. So um, while we have you on, could you perhaps provide some insight um, to our listeners about one of the, um, ostensible paradoxes of politics in 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 your state, um, and this is Florida hitting the headlines over the last few years. First, for voting uh, to emancipate its former felons by restoring their political rights to them once they were freed from jail, and more recently, voting for a uh, fifteen dollar minimum wage, and then subsequently um, plumping for Trump in the presidential election last year. So. Could, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit. Is this a case of Trumpists who support a high minimum wage and the extension of political rights? What's the the political makeup of the state like? Well, it's sort of known as like the sort of quintessential purple state, or at least has been for like the past couple of decades. But it is definitely becoming more red, but it's not a conservative place. I mean, even where I live, um, which is, you know, the most conservative part of the state. Matt Gates, who's like a big Trump guy, is our congressman. Um, you know, it's the Deep South. And like, I like don't worry about being like an openly gay person here. You know, I mean, it's not um, social conservatism is not quite as uh, prevalent here as it is in the rest of the South. Um, but there is a sort of like rabid anti-communism that comes out of like South Florida and stuff like that because mm-hmm. of, well, one, the Cubans, but then after the pink tide in South America, a lot of like professional class uh, people from South America, from Venezuela, Ecuador, places like that sort of moving to Miami and surrounding areas as well. So you kind of have like it skews Republican, but that being said, I mean, it's a service economy state. Um, tourism is the primary industry where I live because it's right on the beach. It, you know, you have a big tourism industry in Miami, Orlando is all tourism, Disneyland or Universal, all that. Yeah. And so people tend to work hourly wage jobs that, you know, perhaps maybe don't pay very well. And so, I mean, if it's, you know, something like a $15 minimum wage comes up, you know, even if you're voting for Trump because you're, a, you know, paranoid about socialism or because you, um, you know, just feel fed up with, you know, the Democratic Party because they're a party of excuses and they never really yeah. deliver on anything or whatever, then, you know, yeah, I mean, people, I don't think people are completely ignorant of their, their material interests. Um, so, yeah, none of that is really surprising to me. Um, that makes sense. Um, so, Mark, and if we turn to you now, so one of your claims to fame was you coined the term uh, metrosexual back in a 1994 article for the British newspaper, The Independent. So you're the daddy of the metrosexual. And um, we were wondering, 
how you think your wayward son has fared since then? And also, what's the difference, if there is any, um, between a metrosexual and a metropolitan elitist? Well, um, oh, so many questions. Uh, on the subject of, of the last question first, before so I don't forget it, <laughs> um, the difference between a metrosexual and a metropolitan elite is that, well, there's several differences, but one would be that um, metropolitan elite isn't necessarily attractive. Um, and uh, <laughs> quite, the, quite the opposite often. You wouldn't want to shag most of them, I suspect. Might be wrong. Um, and the other difference, which is more substantial, is that um, metrosexuality, contrary to um, many perceptions, <laughs> including, of course, The Guardian, um, isn't a hot bourgeois preoccupation. Um, in fact, if it has a class identity or class association, it's much more associated or much more likely to be associated with working class males. Yeah. Um, and when I first wrote about metrosexuals in 1994, when I'd attended a GQ, it's a man's world exhibition, um, which was full of product um, and moisturizer and fashion, but more, most importantly, lots of young men who were uh, living embodied, walking embodiments of what, what I was talking about, uh, uh, young men who, who exhibited a desire to be desired, um, which uh, is for me, not for most people who use the term metrosexuality, but for me, for what it's worth, has always been at the heart of it, the, the male desire to be desired and to be looked at. Um, now, uh, but this, the, 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 the hub of metrosexuality, I argued, was actually not even London so much as somewhere like Newcastle, yeah. which, um, uh, funnily enough, after this became a big thing in the early noughties, You've got lots of newspapers and magazines asking me questions like the Guardian travel department saying, which is the most metrosexual city in Europe? And I knew they wanted me to say Stockholm <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, uh, maybe Milan, you know, something like that. But instead I said the truth or what I perceived to be the truth, which was Newcastle. <laughs> um, and that was years before Geordie Shaw, decades before Geordie Shaw ever happened. And the reason that I said it was because, as I said in the original article, 94 article Independent, was that um, uh, for a lot of working class young men, particularly post-80s, post-Thatcherism, um, post-skilled uh, industrial jobs for life, yeah. uh, they had to reinvent themselves for uh, a very different marketplace and um, and become, you know, uh, uh, a brand of, of a sort. But particularly in Newcastle, uh, it was already the case that, according to these surveys, I mean, I don't know how much you can put, value you can put on these surveys, but I did at the time for the sake of argument. Newcastle men supposedly, and I can believe it, spent more on shirts, on clothes, than any other... Uh, uh, city in Europe, males in a city in Europe. So um, 
this this idea that uh, metrosexuals are somehow um, bourgeois uh, is is not necessarily so. Quite the opposite, quite often. And of course, who who became the exemplar um, of metrosexuality, the poster boy, David Beckham? Yeah. Because David Beckham, who is a, a East London working class lad, you know, before he became a millionaire footballer, superstar, um, had that investment in um, in being glamorous, yeah. which middle class people, properly middle class people, think is vulgar, especially yeah. in this country, yeah. and they think it's even more vulgar in its second. Uh, incarnation, it's uh, second generation manifestation, which is spornosexuality. Because that's not even just about having nice hair, nice skin and, uh, and nice clothes. It's about uh, being a sexualized object. It's about fashioning your own body into a sexy commodity and displaying it. Um, and you, you, you see lots of examples of guardian types who absolutely despise that you know yeah. uh love island geordie shaw um and it's a class hatred yeah as much as anything yeah um there are spawn sexuals who there are lots of spawn sexuals who aren't working class um but it's it's much more of a working class phenomenon particularly in this part of the world and particularly in those parts of the world where there used to be a very strong large working class that worked in heavy industries and all they had was their bodies to sell their labor and that's gone for the most part and now they work on their own bodies is in in gymnasia instead of factories which some of them sell very profitably online yeah <laughs> uh, either on only fans or or um, as personal fitness trainers online on, on YouTube and what have you. So that's the, 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 the difference between metrosexuals and spornosexuals is, is really a generational thing. 20 years after metrosexuality is, is born in effect in 94, uh, 2014, the mid uh, second decade of the 21st century, we have um, a much, I mean, basically metrosexuality has become normal and so what you have to do, you have to intensify the effect and you have to be um, basically pornographic. Ink, lots of ink, lots of pumped flesh uh, on display. Clothes are, the clothes are important, but they are really mm. um, just a way of presenting yeah. the, the body. And as we can, saw I jump, with, can I jump in here? Sorry, yes, Mark. Please do. I, I mean, because I was curious. I mean, well, on one level, I probably should clarify, I guess, for non-British listeners, what kind of Newcastle is like as a city and what Geordie Shore is. Geordie Shore, of course, I think was the original before Jersey Shore was made. But no, anyway, no, other way around. Other way around, right. Okay. Yeah. But same vibe there. But Newcastle, of course, is like the largest city in kind of the northeast of England, which is coal country. So um, you can, I guess, imagine kind of the class connotations of that. But I mean, I was uh, also curious maybe to hear from River what uh, whether he found a similar dynamic, I guess, in the US with regard to what, the, I guess how metrosexuality right. relates to to class. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear, and also, but also to say, I definitely feel I've lost lots of metrosexual credentials, like in lockdown, 
And um, because, you know, just every, all standards have just collapsed. And so <laughs> listeners obviously can't appreciate this. Um, uh, our guests can see me at the moment, unshaven and um, looking kind of generally far less metrosexual and healthy than I normally do. But anyway, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, River. Yeah. What do you think about the, um, how does metrosexuality and spornosexuality, uh, how does it go down in Florida? Um, I guess there must be plenty of it because you guys are on the beach, right? Yeah, you get a lot of that. I mean, if you go down to like any of like the nice sort of beach, uh, like restaurants or bars, you'll see like these like really ripped like guys and, you know, they're just, you know, pretty kind of cells. Um, if you're working in like the service industry, yeah. Um, like, I mean, I've, work jobs before where like you know they <laughs> like basically like if you were decent looking like they would just hire you um but as as to what like mark was saying i think it, it could sort of got me thinking about like when i was growing up because i grew up in a much more rural and conservative area that was in the process of deindustrialization, and i saw sort of what he was talking about, but in, in like a very specific subset of like working class young men that I kind of grew up around, but it was very much this was a in phase Texas. in East Texas, right? Because like they would sort of like, they, I think it was coming downstream from the broader culture because you did have things like Jersey Shore and like the sort of like MTV, uh, like reality show sort of thing and um, all of that. But then all of those guys now, they, um, most of them still live like in my hometown, but they work two weeks on, two weeks on, on oil rigs and yeah. pipelines. And they just look like rednecks like everybody else does. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, I think it was, um, I, I just thought that was an inter interesting kind of maybe a difference that it, that seemed to be more of an urban phenomenon in, in the US than, um, than here. Well, um, don't don't many gays in the U.S. look like rednecks these days? <laughs> um, some of them, yeah. Like I, I have a friend uh, who. Wait, you're proud of your redneck heritage, River? You, I, you, I you am. Talk yeah, about but, it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I have my little Carhartt jacket and stuff. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, I tried to get away from that for a really long time because it, it used to not. Now it's become like really fetishized, like the whole redneck thing. Yes. I have a friend uh named uh matt muck um who lives in mississippi and you know, matt like, muck is a big fan of bunga cast so here's a shout out to matt muck shout out matt yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's the sweetest guy um yeah he comes down to pensacola and we hang out all the time he's, he's great um but he um has made like an entire career off you know the whole redneck persona thing and like i don't think that could have happened um 10, five, 10 years ago. Cause I remember when I was like 18, 19 and like just uh, moved out of my like town of 700 people and like came here, like gay people were mean as fuck to me. <laughs> like they were like <laughs> made fun of my accent. I had to get rid of that. Mm -hmm. um, I had to start like dressing nice. Like mm -hmm. um, it was brutal. But now um, I think the culture's kind of sort of swung because people look at someone like, uh, or gay guys anyway. They look at like um, somebody like Pete Buttigieg and they're just like, 
Ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that seems a fairly natural reaction. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right. Actually, we, we, we've got, I, we're going to talk, we'll come back to Pete Buttigieg um, in, uh, in due course, because um, he was, he did, uh, he did come to mind when we were thinking about the kind of, um, uh, how the position of gays has changed, I guess, in the Western world. Um, but before we get to him, I guess, let's get stuck into the topic at hand. So um, if we start with you, Mark, um, it's the 25th anniversary of the collection of essays that you published um, back in 1996 called Anti-Gay. So could you tell us a little bit about the book, um, its core arguments and the response to it, um, mm. and perhaps um, what you think of it looking back a quarter of a century on? Oh, yeah. Quarter of a century. Um, well, I, I took it off my dusty, the, the, my, my copy off, uh, of the book Anti-Gay off the uh, dusty bookshelf earlier today and um, I'd, I honestly have forgotten just about everything in it um, and uh, including my own contributions <laughs> so I had to, to remind myself but um, it did it did cause a bit of a stir at the time in 96 when it was published um, and that and that was intentional um, it it was it was an incendiary volume, <laughs> um, and but it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't needlessly offensive. It was. It really the offence was. Uh, well, let, perhaps perhaps I should just read out some of the some of the blurb first. Um, have you ever wondered to yourself in private why most gay culture these days is mediocre trash? Why so many lesbians have such a problem with long hair and dainty footwear? Why being gay is like being a member of a religious cult, except not so open-minded? What happens when a gay activist takes celebrating diversity seriously and sleeps with someone of the opposite sex? Whether the closet is perhaps not quite as awful a place as you've been led to believe, and whether you're the only homosexual in the world with these feelings. If you have, it's okay. You're not alone anymore. Anti-gay, the shameful antidote to prideful feel-good politics, will give you the strength to tell the world you're not glad to be gay after all. Um, that is pretty incendiary stuff. <laughs> yes. Pretty, um, pretty punchy. I don't, I don't know that you'd get away with any of this now. No, um, you're cancelled. You're cancelled already, just for this. Yes, I, I shouldn't have taken it off my shelf, really, should I? <laughs> Only bad things can happen to me now. Um, and but but the uh, and the, it's a it's a collection. I did. I only wrote uh, a couple of things in it, and the other the other contributors um, include uh, Bruce LaBruce, Gender Orgasm, uh, John Weir, um, and. Uh, Lisa Power, who I knew from my time on Switchboard, London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard in the 80s, um, back when I still had some milk of human kindness left. And, um, uh, and her piece was about, about what happened when she slept with a male Switchboard volunteer, um, which, you know, uh, it, it didn't go down well at the time. Let's just put it that way. So... Um, Oh, and Peter Tatchell's piece was um, uh, called It's Just a Phase, Why Homosexuality is Doomed. And um, so uh, and there were people, people like Peter and Lisa and maybe one or two others 
weren't, you know, they were they were gay libbers. Yeah. Um, who were already kind of out of fashion by 1996, obviously, uh, because they were late sort of 70s, early 80s gay libbers. Um, but the gay lib project from that era was already um, becoming a radical one again uh, compared to mainstream gay politics in the 90s. Why I actually did this? Well, it really, it it was coming from this, uh, basically it was really designed to piss off the gay press. That's what it was for. And it worked uh, perfectly. Um, Gay Times reviewed it three times, <laughs> or denounced it three times, um, and uh, somebody said to me, well, I, I, I think that Gay Times should uh, change its title to Anti-Gay, Anti-Anti-Gay Times. <laughs> um, but but they, were, they were an easy target, but that doesn't mean that they didn't deserve it. Yeah. And... Um, because the whole of the gay press in the early 90s to mid 90s uh, was 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 actually very powerful because the internet hadn't really happened yeah it was almost all of it was paid for by gay businesses yeah. bars clubs uh, popper manufacturers or salespeople all the rest of it and so we had newspapers like in the UK, uh, Boys and um, uh, Capital Gay and the Pink Paper, which people sat in gay bars reading. Um, and they they all had the same line on everything, which was mm. that being gay is great. Yeah. And, um, and, you, and you've got to go to gay bars and read gay newspapers and buy gay products uh, because being gay is great, and also because straight people are nasty, yeah. and um, of course there was a there was a, a business incentive in exact. I'm not saying there wasn't some truth to the world that they were talking about. And of course, this is this is still in the um, uh, this is just after the the. The, the the AIDS terror, should we call it? You know, the AIDS epidemic. It's beginning to tail off in the mid '90s because of uh, 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 the the heart drug success. But um, it's uh, actually to to put it in another context. There's a fantastic. I know you wanted to talk about it's a sin at some point, possibly if there was time. But I happened across uh, uh, on YouTube a 1981 documentary from a series for LWT called uh, Gay Life. And it's about uh, the gay world in um, the early 80s and comparing it to the 1930s because there's still people alive in the early 80s from the 1930s and the whole kind of cruising uh, world of trade. Uh, from that era. And it's absolutely fascinating because it's a discussion which would be impossible now yeah. because it's it's honest and it's it's a it's simply descriptive. It's not ideological yeah. and it's not emotional. And it's not about a narrative of victims and victimizers uh, and all the rest of it. So uh, even by the 90s that was let alone now even by the 90s, that 
was no longer possible because uh, the the basically identity politics American style uh, and the whole pride parade idea had become uh, really dominant, um, and the whole gay lifestyle as well uh, had been dominant. Although we didn't have any of the American gay ghettos at that time, what uh, really uh, that had driven that that phenomenon in the U.S. But we sort of wanted it. So um, that was that was the world that it was coming out of. And yes, the gay papers and magazines hated it, which is fine. Um, but interestingly, their readers loved it um, because it was the whole point of it. Really, it wasn't to uh, uh, come up with an alternative agenda or manifesto, but simply to talk about the things which you won't get discussed at that time in the gay press. Um, and, uh, oh, of course, you know, again, as I say, now I think <laughs> everything's relative and now things are much, much worse yeah. in, in many ways. So you think, well, actually, what was I complaining about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I but, mean, that, yeah. I mean, that takes us to the question, I suppose. So, I mean, I was thinking in thinking about the the show, um, the just recently, I mean, I saw American embassies made a big show of running up the rainbow flag for gay pride to American embassies all around the world. Um, the Bank of England building in London was bathed in the colours of the trans flag mm. to celebrate trans pride. Um, GCHQ, which for our listeners outside the UK is the core of the surveillance state in the UK, um, it bathed itself in the gay pride colours and it constantly flaunts its connection on social media to um, the famous codebreaker Alan Turing, who yeah. was committed suicide as a result of being prosecuted for his sexuality. Um, so I guess the question, you know, the basic question is, um, did the gays win? Um, River and Mark, what do you think? Did the gays win? And connected to that, well, yeah, we'll come back to Pete Buttigieg, but I was going to ask, I mean, does anyone actually believe that Pete Buttigieg is actually gay? Mayor Pete, so Biden's new supposedly out transport secretary, is he maybe just, I still kind of get the feeling, he might just be a kind of a, a straight guy who's pretending to be gay to get the gay points because, um, you know, like he's um, he's so, he is so kind of... Um, that sounds like a desperate, desperate rationalisation. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite possibly a desperate rationalisation. I understand, I understand, but I suspect we may have to own that one. Yeah, um, probably. No, I'm sure, you're, I'm sure your instincts are right on that. But so, but did, so did the gays, did the gays win? What, what do you guys think? And if winning, what does winning mean, I suppose, in this context? Well, um, I think that uh, this book that I was talking about, Anti-Gay, uh, published in 96, was really, it turns out, the beginning of the avalanche. I mean, not the book itself, but that era that it was lampooning was actually only just beginning to get underway. And, um, and the whole rainbow flag you know, resistance is futile, futile. We, you will be assimilated. Um, of course, it's, it's uh, you know, you've got all the alphabet letters now. Um, in a, so, uh, yeah, and we've got, we've got gay marriage. Um, we've got uh, 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 gay MPs, um, gay everything now. So in a sense, um, everything that this book that I put out all those years ago 
was crit criticizing has just rolled over the culture. But it's, um, in a sense, it, is, it, has, it has almost nothing to do with quote-unquote gays anymore, in the sense that it's, it's, it's so corporate. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 marketing. It's PR. It's it's the lifestyleism of and the the celebrate diversity aspect of nineties gayness um, that has been completely assimilated by corporate NATO uh, war making um, yeah. in in the most extraordinary kind of creepy fashion. Yeah. Which on the one hand, well, that's great because. Lesbians and gays and trans people can be out and they can be, they won't be sacked and they can bomb foreign countries, you know, illegally uh, uh, and be out. I think, I think that that project has um, completely dissipated. Let me bring Griver in. So what do you yeah. think, Griver, is, is have the gays won? The gays have won, but in winning, they've completely destroyed anything that's gay. Like they've they've won by destroying gayness itself, or like allowing it to be transformed into something that can be used for power. Um, you know, there's there's still like holdouts. You know, I I think about like the one bar that we have, or there's a couple of gay bars here, but there's one gay bar in particular where like it's just trashy like if a woman walks in there people give her a side eye like you can smoke <laughs> in there like it's just like and the guy who owns it is like 80 years old and it's like you know this is kind of like the last stretch like you know there, there's in a couple of years like there's not going to be like a filthy smoke-filled room where there's just like porn playing like on the screen and like you know it's the gays have won but at what cost, I suppose it's, um, I, you know, I think a lot of people give too much credit to activism and that's not to disparage anything that anybody did. And a lot of the activism was like really necessary, um, especially like when you're talking about like the AIDS crisis and all that, but, you know, um, people, who still think that there's room for queer radicalism in the West have to come to terms with the fact that like you are rebelling against a set of like gender expectations that existed in a society that is gone. Like deindustrialization, you know, has, you know, the, 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 let me, let me say that again. Like the um, the gendered like expectations that arose like out of like industrial capitalism are gone, and now we're in this weird era where like you don't even really know like like what does it mean to be a man? Like that used to be like a very clear answer of which like having sex with woman was one like with women was one aspect of it. That's why being gay was like shocking and like dangerous to people is because you were like breaking that expectation of what it meant to be a man but now like being a man doesn't mean anything because you don't need to be a man to do any particular job like everybody's um just working in the service sector and like it, it masculinity doesn't mean anything 
I suppose and following on from that, then what happens to the twink revolution when the twinks <laughs> age? Uh, becomes the post twink revolution. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess that no, no, I guess that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. Alex, you and, wanted to come yeah, in. Yeah, no, I mean a... the the thing that actually struck me, River, hearing that you talk about you know gay bars, is that actually that is a process of gentrification, which has kind of happened, um, you know, in all major cities to not just gay bars, right? To kind of the, the social scene as a whole to kind of probably loads of subcultures as well, which either don't exist anymore or also become gentrified. And um, so all these kind of outside spaces, which are a little bit more uh, not lawless necessarily, but kind of not subject to all the kind of formal and informal regulations, which kind of control and determine our lives um, that, you know, it's kind of happened all over the place. So I guess my, the, what I, uh, my question, I guess, is how much of this is a general story or how much of it is something specific within gay culture and indeed like gay politics that that kind of gentrification process has happened well i i mean there is like a like you said like a gentrifying process that's spreading throughout everything and just sort of smoothing out the edges of all culture that's why culture is so bad now but Mm. um i think that there is like something particular going on like within the gay community and a lot of it is coming from like gay people themselves uh, like I wrote an article called um, the woke resurrection of a gay sex panic, which is uh, was talking about the um, Alex Morse allegations where, you know, a college student was basically saying that this, that this guy who was running for uh, Congress in uh, Massachusetts had um, uh, sexually harassed him by like saying like, hi, how are you? Like on like Grindr or something uh, because he was the mayor and it was like power dynamics and whatever. And um, I also talked about, um, you know, people calling Glenn Greenwald a pedophile because he, when he met his now husband, his now husband was like 19 at the time and Brazilian and poor. And so the power dynamics and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of that is just like the professional class sort of HR mindset Mm. that is, I think, particularly pronounced at times in the gay community, because like, generally speaking, at least in the US, like, more likely to go to college. um, And, you know, it's a more sort of uh, you know, those are like the loudest voices in the room and, and every sort of subculture, or like group of people, I guess. But um, there's just so many of them in in the gay world. And they, you know, um, it's the same type of person that produces like a or the same type of system that produces like a Pete Buttigieg is, you know, that that sort of idea that, you know, you are gay. Um, in the sense that you like date men, but that's where it stops. And like, you still have to like, you know, follow all the, like, like you have to pretend like you're at work all the time (laughs) basically. And like, everything has to be like very professional and like sanitized. And I think, I think that's good. You're right. I mean, you're right. The part about being at work all the time, I think is absolutely right. Yeah. And being gay used to be a way (laughs) or an, in effect, a way of bunking off. Um, because you, <laughs> That's right, yeah. Because, you you know, the, the normal rules didn't apply. 
and that was part of the appeal of the gay world is that it 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 had a kind of honesty and uh and a kind of directness to it and a humor to it which um isn't possible in the hr environment that you're talking about really And I got a question, I, I mean, because I really don't know, but wasn't there a, a, an extent to which also the gay world lent a certain raucousness or whatever to the straight world itself? I mean, in at least in kind of alternative culture, but alternative culture, which wasn't um, kind of self-identified as gay. Um, and that that now that the ending of, of that kind of both of kind of gay liberation as a political movement, but more specifically at, at a kind of cultural level, that the ending of that also has an effect on, you know, kind of mainstream culture or maybe not but mainstream you, culture. Have you, got a, have you got a particular example in mind? Like, what are you, what, what are you talking about? Uh, nothing, nothing specific. I guess that's why I asked the question. I mean, just the way that, um, that there was a confluence between alter- kind of general alternative yes. culture and gay culture. Well, I mean, pretty much the, the, the entire output of um, uh, Andy, what's his name? Um, <laughs> the artist. Warhol. You know, Warhol. That's the one. <laughs> uh, you can edit that out and make me sound knowledgeable. Um, uh, that uh, you know that 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 crossover in the in the seventies, sixties, and seventies of of gay culture and gay street culture, uh, which made the name of various uh, personalities and. Uh, Warhol being one of them, uh, isn't really possible now <laughs> um, because there's there's nothing to cross over. The crossover has already happened, and uh, part of the part of the uh, the the effect of that is that on the one hand, you, there there isn't really. Uh, I mean, I feel completely ambivalent about this because I've 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 I've, I've lived too long. And I've I've lived through this this transformation from I I arrived on on the gay scene if you call it that in uh, the early eighties in London, and um, I've seen the transformations and the victories uh, as Phil described them, uh, gays winning. Um, and on the one hand, I'll tell you this that the you know. Gay pubs in London in the eighties, with their drag acts and their um, their high energy, full of smoke, um, they were awful. <laughs> <laughs> or a lot of the time, I felt that they were awful because I felt I was sentenced to them, and because I didn't drink because I was driving and because I was uptight. But um, but they had they did there was a kind of there was a camaraderie. And the and some of the drag acts, one or two of them were really good, um, and the the drag whatever the drag act was, usually it depended on them being brutally honest, yeah. um, and uh, this this kind of honesty and directness and uh, vulgarity is is um, is not really possible anymore for gays or for anybody else. Uh, uh, and 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 yes, and gays are often, as I think uh, River suggested, are, are often the the ones policing this most vigorously. 
these days. I mean, like I was just going to say to the point of like culture and like straight culture. I mean, there was like a kind of a point I felt at various points where um, sort of gay or like queer culture, whatever you want to call it, was kind of like became um, gradually like started the margin then became like the mainstream. Um, and it was done in like a very like campy way that you probably couldn't do anymore. Like, I mean, if you think about like something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which used to you know, be kind of like a French thing, but now everybody knows that movie, everybody's seen it. But I mean, imagine if that movie was made today. You know, um, a straight guy playing like a murderous transvestite with <laughs> like a cannibal and like there's it's a musical like people would lose their minds and it would be gay people losing their minds. Yeah, um, right. And um, but and it's I, I don't think that like there's like a weird um, infantilization, I think, that that comes along with that, that or maybe it's a paranoia. I don't know. But like from certain groups of people and it's not just like gay men or lesbians or, or anybody it's like trans people too um, who think that like anything less than like perfect representation, but by which they mean their life exactly <laughs> like their individual life exactly yeah. um, of like um, what it means to be gay or uh, trans or whatever is like harmful and like is going to make straight people like hate you or like want to hate crime you or whatever. And it's just like not true. And that's why like, I think a lot of like the sort of camp um, kind of like casual, like, you know, in the eighties where rockers would just like cross dress for like no reason or like in like the punk scene, same thing. Um, you know, all of that now, like, in order to be like a punk guy, like wearing a dress on stage, you would have to be like, Oh, I'm non-binary. This is an expression of my identity and or whatever, instead of just being like, I'm doing this because fuck it. Um, which was way more cool and honest. Um, yes. But. So I, I wanted to maybe take the opportunity to turn more directly to the history of gay liberation and, and to the kind of more political aspects, because well, firstly, would you be able to identify a moment, Mark, when this pivoted from being a universal cause of sexual liberation, basically getting the state out of people's bedrooms, fighting for equality and rights, to something that it's become now that everything, that everybody, I think, would identify as pleading for tolerance and respectability? Um, or maybe maybe this kind of search for this moment maybe is the wrong way to go about it. Um, but also, Mark, I mean, in, in doing so, I mean, in responding to, to my question, I wonder if you could also sketch out maybe what, what the difference was or, or maybe give us some examples of what the difference was between what gay liberation meant, not even just for gays, but in a kind of vision of society um, versus what we have today or what's understood as gay politics today. Well, uh, um, as a... As a sort of sideways of way of answering that question, I'll say that um, in anti-gay, uh, in uh, my contribution, one of my contributions, I satirise the idea of Stonewall as this magical moment when all the homosexuals in New York turned into out and proud gays, and and you know how pre-Stonewall, uh, homosexuals were sad, martini drinking, Judy Garland worshipping, <laughs> self-oppressed, uh, self-loathing, 
sad creatures. And then after Stonewall, or on that night, you know, they're all magically transformed into proud, fierce fighters um, for gay liberation and gay pride. And, uh, and I called it the Stonewall Revolution, satirically. Um, but of course, now it's officially designated the Stonewall Insurrection. Yeah. And as we get further and further away, both from that perfectly good bar riot, <laughs> which they're now trying to spoil by calling <laughs> an insurrection, um, as we get further and further away from that night and whatever you know went down that evening and what it symbolized, um, and as as we've definitely got further and further away from the kind of politics that gay liberation came out of, you know, that 60s black power um, uh, and, and also the kind of Marxist background of a lot of these, these movements. Um, you know, gay pride, um, the concept of gay pride, I believe, I may be wrong, I'm not the historian of this, uh, uh, was copying or inspired by um, the idea of uh, black is beautiful. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there is an identity politics and, and you know, women's politics as well, uh, feminism in, in the 60s, uh, all fed into uh, uh, gay liberation. But gay liberationists were, were, were radicals. Many of them were uh, Marxists or revolutionaries. Um, they were very often utopian. A lot of them wanted to uh, and did live in communes, gay communes. Um, and some of them ended up at uh, Switchboard, were still there at Switchboard in the 80s when I briefly worked there as a volunteer. Um, and of course, that was all going to be completely steamrolled. Whatever was left of that was going to be completely steamrolled by, by the 80s. Um, Thatcherism, lifestyleism, um, AIDS kept that sort of gay polit politics going a little bit longer. The idea of activism and uh, yeah. uh, uh, and being under siege and being under attack, uh, but but really um, the, the the whole process of lifestyleism, consumerism in the eighties was having a profound effect and in fact you know um the i would say that probably this is just a purely anecdotal <laughs> prejudicial guesstimate here but i would say that probably most gays were thatcherites in the 80s um on and the, that's a heretical the, thing to say in but, but so uh, thatcherite in what sense they were aspirational right yeah you know, they weren't necessarily Thatcherite in, in, in all the senses of the word, but, but Thatcherism definitely spoke to them. Yeah. Unless they were from, um, well, even for some of the people, gay or lesbian, but particularly gay men, who were from deindustrialized, destroyed parts of the country who had run away to London. And, mm. you know, they, they had this background. Uh, their, their parents were working class and were very labour and, and trade union. Uh, some of them, you know, associated all of that with intolerance yeah. and uh, 
the world that they wanted to escape from. Um, and but I, and I, but I, I think it's also, I mean, it speaks also to that kind of aspect of Thatcherism as well. So there was the kind of the Victorian values um, and the the kind of buttoned up conservatism, but there was also an aspect of it that was kind of, um, like you say, uh, a revolt against the dour world of um, of the, the Labour Party, the working men's clubs, and the trade unions as well. Yes, the nineteen seventies, the the seventies of collectivism, collective yeah. bargaining, yeah. of Terry and June, of um, you know this this for for. Queer kids, the 70s was very often a, a kind of suffocating because it was very, very traditional heterosexual. I mean, you had your, your, your camp comics and all the rest of it, but it was collectivism and communitarianism, particularly in that era, were very traditional and very heterosexual. So that goes to, I guess, a, a follow-up question, um, uh, just a quick one. But would you say most gays are Thatcherite today still? Uh, difficult to say. I mean, um, I mean, it's kind of, in as, yes, in as much as, you know, Thatcherism, well, we, we're all Blairites now, apparently. So, um, and Blair was the heir to Thatcher. Yeah. Um, and... and you know, I, I would I, I would definitely say that many Blairites were Thatcherites, definitely many, uh, and particularly gay Blairites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was there was no doubt in my mind that part of the appeal of Blair was precisely his drag queen <laughs> kind of uh, persona. Uh, how how how's the drag? How's what's the drag queen persona of Blair? That smile. You 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 must you must remember yeah, the nineties. Yeah. He had yeah. this. This and the eyes, and it was a kind of glamorous, but you know, because he was channeling Thatcher to yeah. some degree, and um, and he did have a drag queen kind of charisma to him, which I mean, he didn't have the any of the ribald <laughs> humor, well, but indeed, the honesty <laughs> exactly, yeah, quite the opposite. But he had a kind of glamorousness to him, which was um, unsettling, um, uh, but but fascinating. And um, yeah, I, I think that that the that aspirationalism, which which the Tories um, in the eighties uh, made their own, you know, it, they captured that that concept, uh, was definitely appealing to lots and lots of queer uh, people. I mean, I say queer people, but you know, um, I, 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 I again, I've lived too long. Queer. Um, it's coming, kind of coming back into vogue, isn't it? Yeah, um, but I think with a different meaning, perhaps. But of a different meaning to uh, the the vogue that it had in the nineties, and then of course back in the in the sort of um, mid twentieth century, it had a slightly different meaning. But um, yeah, it it makes perfect sense that uh, kids who aren't heterosexual. Um, or young people who aren't heterosexual who uh, are born in a very traditional environment will will uh, uh, find aspirationalism uh, very appealing and also you know the the and lifestyleism Thatcherism was a a, a a contradictory paradoxical project 
it was extremely modernizing to you know use uh, uh, pseudo-objective language um, and liberalizing economically. But of course, she had to, or her, she and her people, the, the, the Tory party had to, had to sell it as being back to Victorian values. Yeah. But it absolutely wasn't Victorian values. Um, yeah. There was, there was a campaign. I mean, and, and gays were at the center of it. Thatcher, the only thing that she ever said about gays was that famous or infamous speech in the eighties where I think it was the late eighties, mid late eighties, where she's talking about section 28, yeah. which was a tabloid campaign that the Tory party appropriated for entirely political purposes to be, to, because it was a popular uh, campaign against, uh, 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 you know, gay propaganda in, in classes, but also because it was it was a useful, a very useful way for Thatcherism to present itself as being pro-family, pro-traditional values, etc. Let me, but it wasn't. So let me bring in um, River to um, to address this question of queer. So how do you understand um, the meaning of queer today, River? Oh, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't like, I mean, it could like, I can just go through my Twitter mentions because these are the people who get angriest at me. Uh, and just it ranges from like straight boys who paint their nails, um, like uh, NYU uh, art girls, um, effeminate gay men, um, butch lesbians. Like it can, like it's, it can mean anything. And like, I guess like I've had people been like, Oh, well that's actually like liberating. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but it's not like useful because like I've, you know, uh, I've, t I've actually like talked to guys who like identify as queer and they're like, yeah, I've never really done anything. I've never like really been with guys. I don't really know if it's my my thing or not. I'm like, well, why are you wasting my time? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, the term like gay or even bisexual like is like useful at least because like it signifies like what your sort of social role is and like you know um, whether or not we have like a very uh, fundamental like thing in common if like you know i'm trying to hit you up on a like at a bar or whatever it, it it's um it really um i think is probably going to go away i see it as it seems kind of faddish to me um because we've seen cycles of this i mean it didn't really happen that much where i was growing up because i lived in like a really conservative area and this was the height of like the gay culture war sort of but I mean there was a whole like um early 2010s thing where like you know everyone on like tumblr was like identifying as bisexual and like most <laughs> of these people are just like in you know totally conventional like uh heterosexual relationships now I think you're probably going to see a similar thing with the queer thing and um, probably the non-binary thing as well, because, you know, there's 
plenty of people out there. Like I, I, I remember when I first encountered this, the non-binary term, I was probably like 19 and like the people who I saw it when it was usually like um, sort of more butch lesbians, but of the uh, like poetry recital at a coffee shop variety, like the hipstery sort of kind and like kind of um, androgynous uh, looking young sort of feminine uh, gay men. And now it's just like anything, like even straight people are doing it. It's crazy. And um, yeah, I think that's probably gonna uh, wither away too. And I'm sure people get mad about me saying that, but I mean. That's I- fine. We we uh, we we wouldn't be a Bunga cast episode if it didn't have um, somebody getting mad about something at some particular point. Um, <laughs> right. But so, I mean, I, I, you're too young, obviously, for um, uh, for the kind of um, gay liber- the kind of heroic era, I suppose, of gay liberation. If that's the right term. But would you say you identify with an older politics river, or um, or is it more that you feel ill at ease with the the current um, state of of sexual politics or um, gay politics? Well, I mean. I can only really speak to, to, to what I know. And what I know is that like everything that I read about like being gay and all the gay activism that I've ever seen, like in person and all the messaging and stuff within my lifetime has produced this sort of, um, yeah, like Pete Buttigieg archetype. <laughs> And I know I don't like that. So, um, yeah, I think that I think that the sort of divide that you see in the gay community right now, it's really more of like a class divide disguising itself as like a cultural, uh, like a culture war or something. So what's the, what's the class divide? I think a lot of the more like working class sort of, I will just say gay men because I can't really, I don't, lesbians aren't really on Twitter that much. You don't see a lot of them, but uh, um, I, I know like a lot of uh, gay guys who sort of like see things that as I do is like, you know, gay people are too uptight now. And like, you know, all of these people with like sort of new identities who seem very conventional are kind of like, I don't know, um, drowning out um, sort of the fun aspects and like camp of gay culture with, you know, their sort of PR policing. I think, I think that uh, tends to be more like working class people or older gay men who, um, you know, it's for, for whom this is sort of a new thing and they're not used to like, um, you know, being, you know, gay being something that could potentially help you get a job because you're applying to a place that has like diversity quotas, you know, at like a nice university or something. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that that is probably uh, has something to do with like the sort of squabbles that you're seeing right now, especially online. Yeah. So, River, I think your your point earlier about how um, gayness has been transformed into something that can be used for power. This is a really this this, I think, um, raises the question of, of what, you know, what demands could there be? um that could be really emancipatory we've heard um the claim 
on the left and and including by some previous guests we've had on on the podcast that the left took a, a wrong turn when it pitched into sexual liberation and campaigned to emancipate a multitude of oppressed sexual identities i guess the, the question then is like is there anything left to fight for in the cause of sexual freedom is there anything that can be um because i think some of the, the the tone of the the discussions maybe been quite quite negative uh, it, it you know maybe justifiably so but is there anything that it, in this area can can be a re- the nucleus of a really um emancipatory liberatory politics no i don't think so i don't think i don't think that there's anything left to i mean the only fighting that's going to be happening is fighting between gay people about how much we're you know going to get mad at each other and how you know how you know what aspects of gay culture and like these sort of hedonistic um aspects of which are like going to be retained and how much of it is going to be like this you know like hr diversity quota thing or whatever we were like fighting with like a bisexual woman for like an uh, you know an associate professorship at nyu or whatever (laughs) and trying to figure out who's more oppressed like that's where the battle is i don't even think that i think the left you know um maybe in like the 60s and 70s by like attaching itself to like these sort of cultural battles alienated working class people but you know now like i mean like i said matt gates is my congressman he supports like gay marriage which i mean it's not an issue anymore so it doesn't really matter but i mean he's one of the most conservative republicans in 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 the house and it's like nobody really cares anymore about gay people. The, I mean, the, I think there might be a backlash to like everyone identifying as like some form of queer mm-hmm. or whatever, because that seems performative, but I don't even know. I, I think that it's, um, I, I think, how do I put it this way? I think that like, if, if you keep it simple and just say like, you know, okay, well, we want to retain what we have and, you know, maybe in, you know, a universal healthcare program or whatever trans people get included, that's really all you have to do that would materially like help any person. And so you really don't need to say any more than that. I think maybe overemphasizing it could alienate some people just because, not because they even have anything against this sort of thing, but they're just like, okay, well, I don't even know what a romantic means or is what of these people need to be rejected <laughs> or because they're like, you know, um, they're like, okay, well, this doesn't help me because I'm straight yeah. or whatever. Um, so that's, but, I guess, yeah. so Mark, uh, if, if, if Rivers take is essentially the HRification uh, um, mm. of of gayness and you know is, is there anything left after gay marriage I mean what's do you well, have anything to to leave our listeners on a more uh, less doom filled note <laughs> you called the wrong guy mm. um, <laughs> well you know I abandoned what little hope I had left I mean anti gay was a was a a suicide note <laughs> anyway to gay politics for me and and gay identity 
identity politics is a terrible vehicle for sexuality. Because all you end up with is identity politics and no sexuality. And that's what happened with gay marriage. Because gay marriage is about, the whole gay marriage thing, it's, um, it, it's, when it, when it happened, the demands for it in America were bad enough. And thanks to social media, of course, it all, which has, by that time, had begun to really, really kick off. It was all imported into the UK. And I thought in a, in a um, uh, extremely uh, chauvinistic fashion um, that, that because we had civil partnerships already in the UK, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have any time for this culture war this completely bogus culture war, um, which is what it was in the, in the British context, because, uh, let me just point something out very quickly, gay marriage or same-sex marriage, as it's technically called, um, is civil partnerships with just a few, a couple of tweaks. It isn't the same as heterosexual marriage legally, and thank fuck for that. <laughs> because the two tests of heterosexual marriage are uh, uh, consummation, these are actual legal tests, consummation and uh, adultery. <laughs> and neither of these, they tried and they tried and they tried, but the civil service lawyers could not find a way of applying these tests to same-sex couples, same-sex relationships. So they are not included in the Same-Sex Marriage Act and gay marriage is not marriage. It's a lie. Why? Because everybody wanted a piece of this, this culture war um, and, and turning gayness into an identity and into respectability. Um, and you know, and it was a Tory prime minister who who introduced the whole concept. There wasn't a groundswell for it until he pushed the idea. Uh, well, he decided that it would be a good way of rebranding the Tory party uh, away from being the nasty party to being the nice metropolitan party, and it was very successful. And that's what the point of it was. Um, mm. And uh, so it that. Yeah, it worked, and it worked on, on every level, um, including, uh, you know, turning, making uh, homosexuality respectable. Um, and that was, this was the, you know, people, uh, people who, who got very worked up in the UK about gay marriage did it performatively online, on social media, which is what you do nowadays. Um, and once you know when that happened when all of that happened i realized that that there was no substantial difference between us and the us anymore and that identity politics had swallowed everything most particularly it has swallowed sexuality and um sex into identity doesn't go um mm -hmm. and no matter how many letters you stick on the end um, of the the latest banner 
um, it still doesn't fit. And in fact, the more letters you put on, the less it fits. And I would just, I would, I would say, however, that um, my only optimism about the future, well, perhaps not my only optimism, but one possible optimism about the future is about people that probably nobody cares about very much except me, which is um, the, uh, just very quickly, the Wolfenden report that decriminalized homosexuality, male homosexuality, or partially decriminalized it in 1967 in the UK, was based on the distinction between inborn inverts, homosexuals, and perverts. And perverts were otherwise heterosexual men who took part in same-sex sex. And the Wolfenden Report was passed in Parliament on the basis that um, you need to crack down on the perverts and leave the inverts, the born homosexuals, alone to... Uh, and, and in fact, the, the grounds for this, the, the plea for this that was made repeatedly was exactly that in the same terms as uh, gay marriage was to be made much later, which was that, uh, that they just, you know, to be uh, that all that a, a born invert homosexual really wants is is total domestic privacy and bourgeois bliss and that's what it was passed on the basis of so the the so-called perverts you know who are the otherwise heterosexual men um that the wolfton report cracked down on and the police cracked down on because cottaging arrests uh, went up some like 10 times after the decriminalization of homosexuality, so-called. Um, I think that in this brave new online world, uh, whoops, sorry, knocked something over there, uh, that, that this, uh, this subsector, if you like, which is actually much larger than the so-called born that way, Brigade, uh, whether or not you believe that homosexuality is inborn or not, that is um, that because of the the de decline in the taboo and the prejudice against homosexuals, gay people, uh, there is there is more of that other stuff going on now, which um, which there was lots of going on before. Uh, uh, the uh, the post-war period, um, which is why I remember, mentioned that YouTube clip, that YouTube documentary about um, gay life in the 1930s and all the trade that was going on back then, because that was before homosexuality became an identity. Um, mm. Instead, what mattered, I'm not, I, I don't mean to romanticize that period, but what mattered then was gender style rather than an identity. It wasn't until the work of the sexologists really took root in the sort of 1950s that the idea of the homosexual as a separate species was established in the public mind and in the mind of homosexuals. Um, and you know, Foucault, who is uh, an ambiguous figure, uh, nevertheless made the salient observation that Homosec that, that the, the sexologists and the categorization of sexuality and perversions actually 
because it particularly came down to this idea of inborn homosexuality gave mm. pro basically produced the modern gay identity it's based on uh, a sexological perverse category well that's brilliant mark simpson and river page thank you both very much uh down with boxes and down with the sexual bureaucracy uh that's it for bunga bunga but gay this time catch you next time bye bye I, I saw a um, like NATO ad, like a oh. NATO diversity ad today. It was <laughs> yeah. the dark thing I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, all of that stuff. I, I'm, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how far it, how um, mainstream it is in the US, but in the UK, like it's, um, I mean, all, you know, the, the police station, very amusingly, a friend tweeted, um, he was going for his kind of walk in lockdown and he tweeted a photo of Pentonville prison which is where Oscar Wilde was imprisoned in the 19th century, running up the gay flag. Um, you know, oh, it's just completely bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a grotesque is the word really. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, but yeah, the, the, the NATO ad, we are all different. <laughs> <laughs> we are Borg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, it's yeah. completely strange. Um, yes, well, everybody wants to be special now, yeah. but nobody is. Yeah. And that's the, that's the problem <laughs> that gays face, <laughs> in yeah. a nutshell. And, that's yeah. how, and that, I think, also partly drives the, um, all the kind of um, uh, aromantic, asexual, new identity stuff as well, um, non-binary. Like... Yeah, you, you get to be an entrepreneur and come up with um, an ever more uh, new, newer ways to make yourself special. Yes. We all want to be. Yeah. Well, I think it might have something to do with like the way that, well, one, elite overproduction, but two, like the way things have been going in, in academia lately, because like a lot of the things that people are describing and like creating into new identities, like the aromantic thing, or, you know, where it's just like, oh, well, you don't want a relationship or whatever but then they'll be like oh well it exists on a spectrum i'm like so sometimes you want a relationship and sometimes you just hook up I'm you're like, a normal person <laughs> yeah you're a normal person and i yeah i think like it's just like people are like okay um yeah it's just some grad student who you know <laughs> has to write a thesis in like three months and they're like okay well i'm gonna write about this very specific thing that's going on in my life right now and um <laughs> make it into a whole, there you go, a whole new identity yeah with a whole yeah. new social theory to go with it um there'll be a new identity that's like gay for the stay or something and that's what they'll be <laughs> <fine> <laughs> the wilds prison next <laughs>